Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, Hell Explained. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46, as we hear a message entitled, A Description of Hell. When I spoke about heaven, I said that heaven is a place of sights and sounds and smells and tastes. I spoke of Christ's physical resurrection from the dead, and I said, as he was raised, so he also will be raised. That is, he was raised bodily, and we too will be raised bodily. You know, heaven, I said, is not simply a spiritual state of mind. It's it's a real physical place. The righteous who are counted worthy of eating of the tree of life are invited into the life to come, a real physical life with resurrected bodies ruling and reigning with Christ for all of eternity. Furthermore, when I spoke of heaven, I spoke of what happens to the righteous when they die. We noticed that Paul had said in Philippians 1.21 that to die is gain, and in verse 23 he says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. So Paul assumed that at the very moment of his departure, he would be with Christ. Now, he repeats that hope in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8. He says, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And so all Christians anticipate that at the point of their death, when they are away from the body, they are at home with the Lord. And and that, as Paul says, is better by far. But we also notice that 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52 states, For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. And then we find that at the end of the age, the righteous dead are raised bodily. And so because of this biblical material, Bible teachers often speak of an intermediate stage. Straight away upon death, all those whose sins are atoned for go immediately into the presence of Christ. And then at the end of the age, both those who hope in Christ here on this earth and those who have died and are in heaven with him receive at that moment a resurrected body, and so they are forever with the Lord. And so since that's what the biblical material is saying, many believers will often ask, well, what is this intermediate stage like? And the Bible gives us so little information, only that we're in the presence of Christ in glory, and and that compared to our situation now, well, it's better by far. But what happens to those who die and do not have their sins atoned for? What of them? And here Jesus helps us. I'm reading Luke 16, verses 19 to 23. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. This is clearly a terrifying scene. But whatever we make of it, one thing remains clear. The unrighteous go immediately to Hades upon death and are instantly in a place of torment. And here we're left to wonder, clearly just like heaven, Hell or Hades happens immediately after death. There is no unconscious soul sleep or a state of non-existence until the last day. It would seem that even though human beings are contingent beings, that is, we're dependent on God for our existence, at each moment in time, 
And yet, it would seem that God has so designed us that when the body is torn from the spirit at death, the body dies, the spirit does not, it continues to live. Now, many, and I include myself in this group, believe that in some fashion, God provides a form of clothing for those who have died, an intermediate body, if you will, perhaps some kind of a physical existence in which we live. And I get that from the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Look at Luke 16, verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. So clearly the rich man is overwhelmed with physical suffering, not just spiritual suffering. He's horribly thirsty. He has no relief from his pain. Now, following our format that there is an intermediate stage, what then happens to the unrighteous at the end of the age, that is, when Christ returns? Now, again, as before, let's let Jesus describe it. And this is a part of his famous sermon known as the Olivet Discourse. It's found in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, of course, there are so many things that capture the imagination. What was Jesus talking about when he spoke about seeing him naked and hungry and in prison? That is, who exactly was Jesus speaking about when he spoke of the, of the least of these my brothers? I mean, that in itself is a fascinating study, and it does deserve our attention. But for our purposes, because I don't want to lose sight of the theme of the sermon, and so let's simply address the actual descriptors of heaven and hell and see how Jesus pairs off his description of the two. Jesus is describing his role on the great final day of judgment. And as he does, he says that every human being who's ever lived is standing before him. That is, those whose sins are atoned for and those whose sins are not forgiven. Those who've received a new birth and now seek to identify with Jesus even in prison and those who do not. And like a shepherd, he passes through the mass of the human race and puts everyone into two groups. 
Please do not bypass verse 46. Notice the pairing of the words, eternal punishment against eternal life. If, as some argue, hell is not of endless duration, then by the very nature of this biblical language, then neither is heaven. But clearly, the very nature of this text indicates that both, that is, the life that the righteous receive and the punishment that the unrighteous receive is eternal. That is, it's unending. There's no, there's no evading the force of this argument. If hell is of a limited duration, then so is heaven. And as is clearly the case, because heaven is of an unlimited duration, it's never ending, it's eternal. Therefore, so also is hell, it is eternal. Now, one more text before we actually describe hell. Revelation 20, verses 11 to 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So so please notice, would you, that the lake of fire is described as the second death. And this is the answer to those who say, well, wait a minute. The Bible only promises that the unrighteous are going to die. See, as we've already seen, all that death is, is the tearing of the soul from the body. But the soul or the spirit continues to live. There is then a first death, which means the soul is torn from the body. And then there is a second death, which means the person is thrown into the lake of fire. And that is what's meant by death in the Bible. It is the lake of fire. Death is simply an illustration for the existence in that lake, which clearly, as the Bible describes it, is eternal. One of Dr. Neufeld's most requested series was his study on heaven. The typical response was that this biblical perspective of heaven was like nothing they'd heard before, offering a refreshing clarity and hopeful perspective. Since then, it's been Dr. Neufeld's intention to bring the same biblical clarity to the subject of hell. Now, in a five-message series airing the last week of November, Back to the Bible Canada presents the series, Hell Explained. Here, the often difficult and uncomfortable doctrine of hell is unpacked and the seriousness of its existence discussed. So, take the opportunity to listen on air, on our mobile app, or ask for Hell Explained on CD at the feature price of only $8, which includes shipping and taxes. So order your copy today, or make a gift to support the ongoing Bible teaching of Back to the Bible Canada by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. It should now be plain that the Bible teaches that the souls of those who die without having their sins forgiven are taken immediately to a place of torment. 
And then before the final judgment, all the unrighteous dead receive their resurrection bodies and are judged according to what they have done. Every human being will be found to have fallen short of the glory of God. Every sin will be recounted. That is, all the actions we have done, all the thoughts we have thought, every public and secret action, all of our hatred against our Creator, nothing will be left unexamined. According to the scene of the final judgment in Revelation, the only hope any of us have is not that when our actions are examined, we'll have been found to pass the test. God does not hold a pair of scales in his hand, weighing our evil deeds against our righteous deeds. I mean, clearly that's not the image. Rather, the only hope any of us have is that our names are recorded in the book of life. If our name is found there, we're saved from the eternal punishment awaiting the world. If our name is absent, every action of our lives are judged as has been recorded. Not one action of our life is overlooked and everyone will have been found to fall short of Christ. So to put it plainly, either our lives are hid in Christ so that Christ first, because of his death on the cross, paid for our sins by dying for us, and second, because of his righteous life lived for us. Either Christ is our substitute and we are judged by his track record or we're judged by our own track record. And so at this point, I urge my listeners to consider these matters. I urge you, if you have not done so, to confess Christ, you're a sinner, that you actively thank him that he lived and died so that you might have your name written in the book of life and that you actively must surrender your life and your future into his hands. Submit to Christ today. Ask him to save you. For unless Christ is your life, your judgment will be on the basis of how you lived your life, and none of us can stand in that day. But let's continue to take the matter further. So what is hell? From the biblical material that describes it, we can see that hell is first a prison, second it's a pit called a bottomless pit, third it's called a place of everlasting burning, fourth it's a place of darkness, and fifth and finally it's a place where God's anger is poured out forever. So let's take these images one at a time. First, the image of a prison. You know, since we know that hell is described as a place God has reserved for the devil and his angels, we can therefore assume that the eternal place of the demons is therefore the place also of the damned. I'm reading 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be left until the judgment. Then on to verse 9. And the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, but to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So at the very least, hell is compared to a prison house that includes chains, it's intensely dark, and it's gloomy. Now, should we think of this as a literal description or is Peter using images that his readers can relate to? Well, I mean, the answer is, I guess I don't know, but it's a very depressing picture. It's a place of bondage that holds the inhabitants against their will. No one can escape from this place. Second, hell is compared to a bottomless pit. Some translations simply call this the abyss. Isaiah 14, in a passage that records a taunt against the king of Babylon, who in his day must have seemed so powerful to Israel, but Isaiah helps Israel to see his final destiny. So verse 11 says, your pomp is brought down to Sheol. 
So the image is that the king of Babylon has suffered the loss of everything that he's ever had. Now to verse 15. But you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Because the image is of a vast underground chamber. So how deep? Well, according to Revelation 9, the pit has no bottom. It goes on forever. The idea that captures our minds is the vast size of the place, infinite room, dark, gloomy, chains, and it continues to go down, down, down. One can imagine not just the size, but the darkness. Third, that hell is a place of everlasting burning. This is one of the most common images of hell. Listen to Jesus' description of it, and it's recorded in Matthew 13, verses 40 to 42. He said, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or consider the words of Revelation 14, verse 10. Speaking of the ungodly, it says, He will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. By the way, would you notice that God is present in hell to torment his enemies? He's justly visiting hell in his anger. The citizens of hell are unable to escape him. But we also see in this image the physical pains of fire. So look at verse 11. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. See, I'm overwhelmed with terror as I think about these things. And to be truthful, the reason the Scripture pulls back the curtain and exposes these things to us is so that we might entrust our souls to Christ and not live on the basis of our own righteousness. So notice what we've seen. Hell is a prison. Second, it's a great and endless pit, a massive cavern of darkness. It has no bottom. Third, hell is a place of endless burning and torment. And fourth, hell is a place of darkness. And if the fire is to be thought of as literal, and I think it should be, I have to imagine that there is indeed a dark fire there. I notice how often the Bible contrasts the themes of light and darkness. John 3, 19 to 20 says that the condemnation of the wicked is that they prefer darkness over light. And Psalm 82 says the wicked walk in darkness. And 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 5 says that those who continue to sin are the children of darkness. And therefore, I'm overwhelmed that Jude 13 would then speak of the gloom of utter darkness that has been reserved forever. And the final image is for me the most terrifying of all the images. It's the thought that God is not absent from hell, for even in hell, wicked men and women will never escape God. Well, if you had thought about it, you would have already known that. You might have thought of the words in Psalm 139, verses 7 to 8. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed into Sheol, you are there. And of course, we've already read Revelation 14, verse 10, that the unrighteous are tormented in the presence of the Lamb. We might think of Psalm 2, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Or Isaiah 66, verse 15, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury and his rebuke in flames of fire. 
See, I know we often quote 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9 that says they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And some take that to mean that hell is a place where the, where the occupants are safe from God. See, but in order to understand 2 Thessalonians 1 9 rightly, we do well to read the next verse. That is, they suffer away from the glory of the might of God. Verse 10 says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. That is to say, on the day of our greatest joy, when the Lord reveals himself, when we shall see him as he is, eyes flowing with tears of joy, hands raised, multitudes shouting with joy, the greatest moment in human history. Those in hell, says 1 Thessalonians, are excluded from that because of the dungeon to which they have been consigned. So according to Jesus and the rest of our Bible, hell is the place where the unrighteous are forever punished. They live bodily and they never escape the torment that is reserved for them. They do this because God is righteous. And what shall we say? We should say, oh God, until now, I had no idea how serious my sin is, and I, and I had no idea how holy you are. I have no chance. I'm condemned. I am a man or a woman of unclean lips. And for this reason, I place my hope in a strong Redeemer, one who has come to pay the price so that my just punishment could fall on him. See, if you've never asked Christ to forgive you, would you join me now and pray, Lord Jesus, I have sinned. Save me from the wrath to come. Be my strong Savior. Here's my life. I surrender it into your hands. Amen. John, I was going to say thanks for your message. I'm not so sure this morning, but... But the reality is it's, it's there in the Word of God, and we're, we're, we're frightened to think about it. Yeah, I mean, if there's one thought that comes to my mind, Ben, it's simply this. I mean, when I hear the biblical description of hell, and we just looked at a number of Scripture passages, one thing for certain comes to my mind, and that is, I just don't want to go there. I mean, it's more frightening than I can possibly imagine, and that's one of the reasons why I said we must never make jokes about this kind of a thing. The, the reality is far too stark. And uh, we should um, do everything that we can uh, to call out missionaries, to make sure the gospel is shared so that the maximum amount of people can find their way into the kingdom of heaven. For we will not and we cannot bear the alternative. That's what we should keep in mind. Thanks, John. Remember to join us again tomorrow right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. February 3rd to the 11th, join us for our 60th anniversary celebration, Caribbean Cruise. Join Dr. John Newfell, Phil Calloway from Laugh Again, Isaac Dagno from In Doubt, and special musical guests Shane and Angela Weeb for a nine-day adventure of not only enjoying the sights and sounds of the Caribbean, but exceptional opportunities for worship, fellowship, laughter, and digging deeply into God's Word. I promise a vacation event that will refresh, encourage, and draw you closer in your walk with Jesus. So don't miss out. Call today for more information as room is limited. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page online at backtothebible.ca. 
And please remember that any of our Back to the Bible Canada vacation events are paid for solely by the participants, and the gifts of ministry friends across Canada are never used for this purpose.